Welcome to the Fishbowl, the podcast where I record conversations about business, entrepreneurship, and other valuable topics. We have a super exciting episode of the Fishbowl this time. I'm sitting down with Atkarsh Jane and Nick Flanagan from Hard.io to talk about what they're doing. Some great things over at Project Olympus in Pittsburgh, just near to the University of Pittsburgh, as well as Carnegie Mellon University campus. So how are you guys doing today? I'm good. I'm amazing. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm pumped to have you guys here. We also have Natalie Hardy, the intern from Hard.io. How's it going, Natalie? It's going swell. We're going to get right into it, Fishbowl audience. Go ahead, Utkarsh and Nick. Tell us about the, your personal backgrounds, which has led to this journey you're on now with Hard.io. Uh, so I, I want to begin with uh, eighth grade when I, you know, became class president. It was the, um, you know, the point that I peaked in my life. Um, I was actually voted uh, most likely to become president in my as per my high school superlatives, but ironically because I wasn't born in the country. Um, yeah. So after high school, after I peaked in middle school, I went to college, the University of Pittsburgh, where I double majored in neuroscience and applied math. I wanted to be a doctor going into college, and much to my parents' dismay, after one semester, I was like, I kind of hate memorization and science, so I'm not going to do that. And I found a love with mathematics, and I saw the world in numbers, and I saw the world in algorithms and functions, and it's just the only thing that kind of intrigued my interest, per se. And so after I graduated college, I immediately started my PhD also at the University of Pittsburgh because they were the only people that would accept me. And I'm getting my PhD right now at the, um, in bioengineering. So That's yeah. fantastic. I'm so glad that you mentioned your start early within leadership and really taking the initiative on tasks all the way back to eighth grade. Oh, is that what you got from that? That was supposed to... Okay. <laughs> No, no. I, I really like what you're doing, of course. Uh, you're challenging yourself with the type of major that you decided to take up over at your MBA courses. But I think it's great how, you know, your start early definitely does dictate a lot of your path in uh, your early 20s, what you're doing now. That's yeah. awesome. Thanks for sharing that. How about yourself, Nick? Absolutely. So I want to first thank you for having us on the podcast. And I guess we'll jump right in. So uh, I came to CMU in 2014 decided to take up economics and in my freshman and sophomore year I really noticed a gap in my education that I was sort of yearning to work with startups and sort of entrepreneurial people and so I started reaching out to founders at companies in Pittsburgh and working directly with them to help them uh, mostly pre-seed stage companies and then since then my founder network sort of grew throughout junior and senior year and I was helping companies in New York and Silicon Valley sort of part-time while I was in school and I sort of met up with Uckers through one of the founder, another founder through Hard.io, who him and I went to boarding school together, and he reached out to me. We talked and had a conversation for about four hours one night, and uh, about two hours it was actually us catching up from uh, from high school. And he sort of talked to me about the opportunity. I said, "Yeah, absolutely, I'd love to meet the rest of the team." And then we met in a coffee shop. And since then, Uckers has told me that I'm the smartest person he's ever met in a coffee shop. And uh, I always make the joke. I'm like, how many people have you actually met in a coffee shop? <laughs> he still hasn't told me. <laughs> That's hilarious. You guys are just from the past hour. I've been sitting with you guys, talking to you guys, prepping for this podcast. You guys definitely are a little bit 
uh, different in personalities, however, very harmonious, very complimentary. So I commend you guys on assembling such a great team. I think that is absolutely fantastic. You you start with entrepreneurial activities while you were still at CMU. Was that quite difficult for you? Yeah, it was definitely hard for me to maintain the workload because, you know, CMU is pretty stressful. Uh, it, back to the workload thing, it's it's a lot of work at CMU, to get, especially to get good grades and then also to be doing some sort of side hustle. And so I will definitely not be remembered for my GPA once I graduate, if I graduate, knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for putting that out there. I mean, that's just the sad truth, so to speak, for many entrepreneurs who are trying to use their time in college as kind of a springboard into their entrepreneurial activity. So in that way, maybe they won't have to go into a job, but actually go into a job which they create. I commend you on that. That's definitely what I'm trying to do as well with the projects I'm working on. So what is Heart.io? Uh, so Heart.io is an artificial intelligence electrocardiogram analysis platform that's housed in the cloud. So an ECG or electrocardiogram is one of the most common diagnostic tools used to diagnose a variety of heart conditions like heart failure, uh, heart attacks, arrhythmias. So what we do is basically take this data that's collected by this ECG machine and we analyze it and we can come up with undiagnosed factors that can help a physician make the make sure the treatment course for the patient is the best that it can be. Yeah, so sort of from a high level, we're building a cloud-based solution that helps with, it helps sort of doctors better understand what's going on with their patient's heart health. What do you guys have in mind for things that can be done just right off the bat with this sort of technology? Yeah, so we're sort of in the early stages, even though Uckers, he's actually been working on the technology for about three years now. So myself and the other co-founders, we've been working on uh, the company for between eight months to a year. Sort of with regards to, to sort of your statement, we just started our first clinical trial with the largest private practice of cardiology consultants in the U.S. Um, so they're in Philadelphia, and we're really excited about that to sort of see the outcomes of that study. That is so sweet how they're using, you know, two opposite sides of Pennsylvania, yet nonetheless, it can still work together. Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, two real up-and-coming cities, two big players within startups, and I love how you guys are implementing both. Now, Utkers, what type of things does Hard.io do implementation-wise? So we try to uncover undiagnosed illnesses that a patient might have. So the thing with an ECG is it's a very subjective test. If you give the same ECG to four different physicians, you'll have four different results, right? So the issue comes into being, you know, how do we make sure that when you take the ECG that the person that you're trying to diagnose or treat or help is getting some sort of objective result? And that's difficult with um, physicians. That's why these um, there's already algorithms on machines that sort of do the first try at reading it. But unfortunately, those um, algorithms are pretty archaic and they haven't really advanced at the same rate as other technology, which is why we're trying to implement AI to sort of give that objective truth to help physicians navigate through the ECG analysis process. Adkarsh, you're the one that really stumbled across implementing this in this way. How did that happen? Um, so it was like 3% perspiration, 90% luck, and 7% something else. 
Je sais quoi, if you will. It was it was not it was not because I'm some sort of math god. It was basically because I tried a bunch of different things and one of them happened to work out. So the reason that um I kinda got started in um this algorithm was actually because my grandfather passed away uh, because of a misdiagnosis. He had an ulcer, but they misdiagnosed it, the ulcer as having a heart attack. He had chest pain. So in the ambulance, they gave him blood thinners, right, which are usually used for heart attacks to thin the blood and make sure the flow comes back. But what actually ended up happening was his ulcer burst, and he died almost immediately. And that kind of got me thinking, you know. My grandfather was in India at the time. And my dad had a um, aneurysm, and he, they asked the same question in the ambulance. They asked, hey, do we give this guy some blood thinners? But they held off until they had more information. So I see this parallel. My grandfather was in India. My dad was in the U.S. And that might have been the only difference. And software is cheap, right? Software, you can send software in an email across the world. It gets to the other side. If you can somehow make something that can help anyone, give some sort of objective truth anywhere across the world. That's my goal is to create something like that. Wow. Yeah. I love that. Serendipity, intense personal emotion and experience. How has that experience, which you're clearly passionate about, helped to propel you and work hard towards Hard.io and assembling this team? When you create a startup, you have to take a good solid look in the mirror and understand that you're not great at everything. You're sometimes you aren't even good at everything. Sometimes you're not good at anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to, when you create your team, it's not about finding people that look like you, that think like you, that want to have the same ambitions. It's about people who are different, people who think differently, people who have different ideals. So you can all come together and create some sort of complex web of sort of a drive. Right? You're all doing it for different reasons. You might have one singular goal to help people or to make money, but it's like you're doing it for these varied reasons and that's what propels each one of us. But we have this goal in mind to change the face of cardiology. For example, I met with Nick at that coffee shop and I told him he was the smartest person upon like five minutes after talking to him. And I was like, okay, we need to get this guy on the team right now because we were suffering from a lack of startup experience, financial experience. And this guy is basically the smartest person I know when it comes to any of that. And then uh, Uckers was very generous to offer me 1% equity and he offered up to 3% equity. And then I sort of looked at him. I was like, are you, are you serious right now? Are you serious? <laughs> That's a true story. Nonetheless, Nick, an essential piece of the puzzle. How did it feel once you, you know, were actually on board and when you were thinking about being on board with Hard.io, what was crossing through your head? Yeah, absolutely. So when I came on board, Utkers is definitely not exaggerating. Um, they were really early. They were actually a general partnership when I hopped on board. We've since converted to a Delaware C Corp. But at least in the early stages when I hopped on, it was very clear that it was sort of Uckers as the mad scientist. Adam was sort of working on the FDA and working on the SBIR and sort of working on the some sort of compliance and grants side of things. And then Mike was developing that relationship with our clinical partner right now, which is really valuable. But the problem was is that they were sort of lacking that business and that commercialization pathway. And so since then, since they've sort of brought me on board, I think we've had a lot of great growth that even without capital, that's really exciting. You were actually one of the last members to join Hard.io. Tell me about all the team in between and as you were kind of delving into what sort of roles they have. 
Uckers sort of made this technology right, and Adam at the time was in the same PhD program as him, and they sort of met at this restaurant one day, Cadoba, and Uckers asked him, said, hey, you know, what should I do? And then Adam goes, why don't you start a company? And then they both decide to start a company, and of course they have no idea how to do this, they don't know what they're doing, and so they reach out to Mike, who they knew had strong connections in cardiology, and they said, hey, would you be interested in this? And Mike and Uckers were on the same floor in undergraduate, and Mike said, yeah, absolutely, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hop on. And then about four or five months passed, and they reached out to me, and we've sort of been smooth sailing from then. That's a joke. Yeah, it's been like rocky waters. Our sail's been broken a couple of times. But, you know, we have the uh, know-how to fix it. You know, duct tape comes in handy. I, I think this metaphor has gone too long. <laughs> <laughs> I get what you mean. Sometimes you just got to make shift, see what happens, just keep your sail up, so to speak. Yeah, startups, it's basically like there's a new idea every single week and you change what you're doing every single week and nothing stays the same. And the only thing that's constant about startups is the fact that it changes. I think that's probably one of the things that I love about startups the most, especially early on. You know, we're definitely going to miss these days um, in the earliest of days where it's like the 3.30 a.m. mornings, four cans of Red Bull crushed on the floor and sort of coming to that realization that we just that vision hits us, that epiphany one night. And I remember looking at Uckers, I'm like, yo. This is it. This is what we got to do. And so since then, we've sort of been running towards that thing, that end goal, which we can talk a little bit about later. But that, that one night was definitely really memorable for me. And those are those those type of moments with your co-founders and people early on. Those are the things that you really remember when things get tough and you really sort of call back on those. And those sort of help drive you forward when things get tough. Powerful. I used to think those types of moments were perhaps cliche in the startup world. No, they're completely cliche, but <laughs> they still happen. <laughs> how often do you guys pull those long nights? Um, so how many days are there in the week? Seven. <laughs> you have your answer. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's great, though. No, I mean, I, 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 we used to do that a lot early on, and then we realized we were sort of abusing ourselves, and we've since then tried to shift a little bit more towards being healthier. We always make the joke that we're going to start exercising soon, and that never happens because we're just always working. But <laughs> we've at least tried to maintain better sleep hygiene. That makes sense. That really shows how much you care about the business to really put everything else off. That's really cool to me. So you guys have some sick stories you guys are telling me about. What are some of your cool startup stories that you guys have experienced so far? One of our funniest stories going on uh, in the beginning was meeting this one cardiologist at a coffee shop in Pittsburgh. We were just practicing our pitch, Adam and I, and we were just like talking back and forth, thinking about the ideas, thinking about, you know, how are we going to approach this? How do we explain this? And then he uh, kind of butts in and he's like, oh, I heard you guys were talking about some cardiology stuff. I'm actually a cardiologist, so I'm on a, you know, take, take a look inside the uh, engine, if you will. And we, we were like, oh, well, you know, we want we were practicing. So at that point, we kind of gave him the pitch. And at the end, he looks at one of the graphs we have that kind of show us above other people. And, and he sits there with his uh, legs crossed and his like arms crossed. And then he points to the screen and he says, I don't believe this. And I'm like, well, you know, I have biases. You have biases. You don't think AI can do this. I don't think medicine can do that. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I don't have any biases. I'm a cardiologist. And I'm just like, at this point, well, if, how can I argue with someone who says they have no biases? So I'm just like, I, we're going to go. And he's like, I don't think you can do this. And I'm like, I think we can. So 
if I see him again, hopefully he'll be using our software in the future so I can ask him how he's doing with that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a fantastic moment, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Another funny one. Uh, so we were meeting with one of the partners of Y Combinator. They did an office hours here at CMU. And I was sitting outside. I could sort of see the partner. I was up next. Uckers was supposed to come and be at that meeting with me. Um, and I get a text from him two minutes before they call me in saying, hey, so uh, I'm pretty hungry. I'm going to go get some food. I'm like, what? You're going to make me do this alone? He's like, well, I'm, I'm really hungry. And so I go into this meeting uh, with the Y Combinator partner. And if you're not familiar with them, they basically grill you for 10 minutes straight. So that was a really fun experience for me because I was not expecting to have to do it solo. Um, so it was definitely a growth moment there where I was sort of leaning up against the wall, just getting hammered with really tough questions and really fair ones. But at the same time, it was really I had to um, dodge some bullets. So <laughs> but it was it was a great growth experience. The food was really good. I mean, I couldn't say no. So um, another story that I really like to remind Nick about when he reminds me of the Y Combinator thing is the fact that we had a 2 p.m. meeting. This one really important guy. And I had not talked to this guy at all. Nick had been emailing him back and forth. So I had no idea what he was about or what we were going to be talking about. And then Nick tells me that, uh, you know, he can't make the meeting. And it's this meeting is at 2 p.m. And he said he slept overslept a 2 p.m. meeting. So I, I call this guy and uh, <laughs> I had to come up with an excuse. And Nick, Nick, Nick was like, you know, my mom was really angry at me this morning. So I tell that guy that Nick had a family emergency because he uh, his mom was mad at him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I, um, if you ever talk to Nick, just remind him that he can't – we can't schedule the 2 p.m. meetings. It has to be like 4 or 5 now. That's hilarious. And um, one of the other people that we picked up along the way, his name was um, – his name is, he not was uh, – Emerson. And he is someone I talk to almost daily, and he's sort of our chief medical officer at the po- at this point. And I remember this one particular story. It was during the U.S.-China Summit at CMU, and we were picked to be one of the semifinalists. And we had just gotten a lot of coffee at this point. The funniest part about this summit was every other startup had like 500K or a million dollars in funding. They already had like a year worth of revenues. And we look look around in the audience and we're just like, why are we here? Who, who picked us? Whose job, like who failed at their job, you know, basically. <laughs> and so we, we kind of knew that we weren't going to win this competition just for the fact we didn't really have a product to display at this point. And it was sort of a demo. So, so... That's what we were, what was going through our heads, and we got coffee at this point. We came back; it was our turn, and I, I give my um, watch over to Nick just to check out his heart rate, and his heart rate's like 130, 140, and I'm just <laughs> I just look at him, and I'm like, "Are you okay?" And he's just like, "I'm so nervous," <laughs> and and then we give Emerson is a electrophysiologist, so we give him the uh, watch, and we ask him, you know, is Nick going to be okay? And he's and Emerson's like, "I don't know," <laughs> and we give Emerson the watch. He wears it. His heart rate's like seventy, and we're just like, "Do you get nervous?" And he's like, "I never get nervous." Yeah, and so a little bit of background on Emerson. So the way we met is he actually reached out to us through our website a while back, 
and sort of told us about his story. So he used to have a startup in this space that sort of fell apart, unfortunately, because the talent that was working for his startup guy got actually poached by a very large autonomous vehicle driving company here in Pittsburgh. Uh, so he was working with a few professors from uh, one of the colleges here in Pittsburgh. And so we always make the joke with him that we're the B team because now he's working, you know, with millennials rather than, you know, really well-established researchers who are coming from a really large academic institution. So it's just a fun running joke we have with him. Wow, that's a great story. It must have been terrible to get that stolen from him. However, he gets a second chance now through you guys. But the B team stands for best team, obviously, if, without question, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. And uh, another one of our we, – we, we, we were in a lot of competitions. So this other one, we were in the Cleveland Medical Capital Innovation Competition. We had the same deck that we had at the U.S.-China Summit, and we tried to you know, do a practice pitch with these guys from Cleveland. These guys from Cleveland were not really thrilled with our pitch. They stopped us in the middle, and they were like, hold on. I don't understand anything. And we were like, you know, we had to like, you know, there's a language barrier with the U.S.-China summit. We had to like water some things down. And then one of the guys goes, no, you don't understand. It's all water. <laughs> you can drink from this. <laughs> How did that make you guys feel? So it kind of energized us. Uh, we're the type of people that if you tell us our baby's ugly, we're going to like fight you. You know, we're going to go back and we're going to take the baby to the gym and we're going to make sure it can like outlift you. You know, that's... <laughs> So you guys are kind of the type to get energy and motivation from having a chip on your shoulder. Oh, absolutely. When people say like something mean or, you know, hurts my feelings a little bit, I'll be upset about it for days. But like rather than sort of letting it get me down, I'm just like sitting there grinding for 18 hours straight, just thinking about it and just working and working and working. And I'm just like, I'm going to prove them so wrong. They're going to they're going to eat those words. And maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe they won't. But that's the goal. Right. It's not necessarily to make them eat the words, but to show them that, you know, we are going to do it. We might not be perfect. We're going to make mistakes along the way, but we're going to get there. That's great. And so sort of one of the other really interesting stories, um, one of our advisors. So he recently sold one of his companies for uh, a really, really large, substantial amount of money. And he's been providing a lot of great advice and guidance to us thus far on sort of the business commercialization side of things. So what's really interesting is that my dad actually used to work for their company. And so he actually helped build the device that this company used and eventually sold, which is really interesting, sort of things coming full circle. My dad used to work for this guy, and now he's advising our startup. That's a very valuable connection. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess one of the last ones we'll talk about, probably one of the funnier ones and more interesting ones, I was sitting in my one of my economics classes one day, and near the end, I was sort of talking to my professor and sort of drawing ECGs on the board, explaining the business, explaining the idea, and really just explaining to her why I was basically failing her class. And she was really not having it. She was not that interested. But um, nonetheless, I tried my best, and it was pit, it was pitch practice. practice so uh, can't can't go wrong there. And one of the CS people, it was in, it was in the CS school at CMU. And a CS person came up to me and said, like, hey, what you're working on sounds incredibly interesting. I heard you pitched your professor. Like, you should reach out to this guy. And so this guy that we're talking to, he is currently working on AI at Apple. And he's been really, really helpful to us in sort of providing language and just sort of that guidance of how to explain AI to people in healthcare or to people who aren't necessarily technologically adept. He's been, he's been really fantastic. Kind of the story about how we got to meet him was we basically you know 
Nick had this guy come up to him. This guy emailed me, and I was like, Nick, who is this? And he's like, this is this is random kid from my class. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to meet to get coffee with this random kid from your class, because that's what I do. I meet to get coffee with random people. Um, he was not smarter than Nick, so <laughs> he I met at least two people. <laughs> Uh, so, and, you know, we just kind of talked and, you know, he was really interested and it was more, the conversation was good. And he talked about, you know, like the challenges and, you know, just the strengths of, you know, AI and software, being a software company, being a hardware company, things like that. And at the end he was like, you know, I had this class with this professor. You can probably check him out. And so what we did was Nick and I sat in the back of his class and we went up to him and we asked him, Hey, we have this cool startup. Do you want, he probably gets this like 10 times a day, right? So we were just like, we have this cool startup. Can we tell you about it? We wanted to like make it short and brief so we didn't like get annoyed. And we, he basically was like, come to my office hours. And so. Yeah. And I think one of the things that helped us land it was, so one of his colleagues recently did some research in this, this realm or field. And so we sort of showed him that research and we showed him some of the stuff we were working on, the results and things like that. And that got him really, really excited. And so then since then he's been really a big fan of what we're working on. Those are some fantastic stories. Right now, we're sitting in a sweet conference room near Forbes Avenue, and this is Project Olympus. Why don't you tell me a little bit about it? Absolutely. If they had not brought me onto the team, they would not actually have access to Project Olympus. So whenever things get tough, fuckers, just remember that. Wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> but no, Project Olympus is the startup incubator associated with Carnegie Mellon. And this incubator can be used by any CMU faculty, alumni, student, parent, family, friend, really by anybody that's associated with CMU. And so one of the requirements is if you're going to be a formal startup in Project Olympus is you need to have one CMU founder. And so I always sort of made that plug early. I'm like, well, if you want to use Project Olympus, you got to you know give me the founder title. <laughs> so that was my shameless plug early on in the beginning to try to sway him towards my side away from the one to three percent equity <laughs> smart that's definitely a great selling point yeah yeah and so yeah and so uh i guess some of the challenges so we've definitely had a lot we've made a lot of mistakes already we haven't necessarily burned any bridges but we're sort of fumbling through things i mean i, I guess that's kind of to be expected when you're 23 year old team sort of millennials leading other millennials trying to build this technology that is not only really incredibly complex, but it's trying to solve a really complex problem in a really complex space. And so I guess one of the biggest challenges early on was when they came to me was me trying to wrap my head around really what Utgers was saying. And so when he explained it in the coffee shop the first time to me, it was really clear that he had not pitched this to business people because I, I mean, I understood it pretty well, but it was clear that he needed some practice. And so since then, he's definitely gotten a lot better. Worked on it, worked on it quite a lot, almost a disgusting amount. But needless to say, just in the very early beginning, just explaining it to people was really tough and getting them, trying to get them excited about what we're working on and why it could really be something, a technology that's really incredible. Uh, another big problem too is figuring out the commercialization pathway. That's something that I've been struggling with for the past, you know, six to eight months even, because I've had to teach myself a lot of the problems in the space and then figure out how can this sort of, it's a solution searching for a problem. It's a, it's a problem that's um, sort of common in research at large universities where a professor makes something and then you have to figure out what market and what vertical does it fit into and then finding that zero to one, that, that problem that you can sort of dominate in and then scale from there. 
And so that was definitely, it's, it's a problem that we're still sort of at least even struggling with right now and hammering out that commercialization pathway. And that was one of the reasons why we went and got some really incredible business advisors to help me because in the early on, in the early days, all of our advisors were either medical or technical people. And so it was sort of like I was on my own in the wild west trying to figure out how to take this incredible technology and move it forward, which is definitely certainly no feat for a founder at 23 years old in their first startup. One of the other larger challenges, too, is really being able to parse out the lingo and the jargon from the different sort of groups that we, we talk to. So we have the technical group, we have the medical group, and then we have the business group. So obviously the medical group, there's a lot of language and there's a lot of different terms and sort of variables in my mind that they use. And you have to use different language when you're talking to them versus when you're talking to somebody about AI. And so one of the things, unfortunately, for Uckers and both myself is we're sort of sponges for information. So when we read something, we like can regurgitate it. And so when we do this, we, we at least in the beginning, we were doing it to people we were pitching to and we realized we were going to them and just hammering them with a ton of information and they were just absolutely lost in the weeds. And so that was something early on that we worked on a lot to try to pull all of that, that curse of knowledge away from us both so that we could simplify things and explain it more clearly. Going off that, it's just wanted to elaborate. The fact is that when you're trying to solve a problem that's so big as cardiovascular disease in healthcare, there's so many different problems. There's so many different diseases and there's so many different people that are trying to help. And the one thing about when you go into healthcare is you got to make everyone happy. You got to make the physicians happy. You got to make the insurance companies happy. You got to make the payer happy. You got to make the patient happy. You got to make you know everyone involved in the process happy. Otherwise, it might not work. The workflow might be disrupted. They won't like it, right? So that's sort of kind of where we're at is trying to figure out how do we introduce ourselves into the environment in a way that they don't find disruptive, but at the same time, we offer a lot of value. So it's a hard line to travel. That makes sense to me. It makes sense also why you're putting just so much time to this technology. Currently, you guys are working on pretty limited funds. How has that been? Uh, it's definitely, it's certainly been a challenge. Unfortunately, we cannot pay our interns, but they are fantastic. It, you know, if we get some investment money, I'm sure there'll be some amazing stuff coming their way because they really have helped us build a lot of great things. So like just yesterday, Michael, one of our interns, he actually helped us get the cloud set up. So AWS Lambda, which is really exciting because he did it in like maybe two days and Uckers thought he's like, this will probably take you a month or something. And Mike comes back. He's like, I'm done. And Uckers looks at him like, what, what? <laughs> Just to be, just to make sure, I said it would take me a month to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so what is what he set up? I've never heard of that. Yeah, so it's basically it's cloud processing. So that platform will basically be the data sense of the cloud. We process it and then we run that data through the algorithms. I mean, obviously it's cleaned up and filtered beforehand. And then once that data is sort of run through the algorithms, then we spit everything out on our dashboard. So dashboard something we just recently begun working on, and we're really excited about that. And he coded that? No, no. The dashboard we just recently actually started conceptually looking at today. So he's, he's, he's downloaded a few template dashboards, and we're already starting to sort of build stuff into the skeleton from GitHub. Yeah, the biggest problem for him is actually just installing the packages. So. <laughs> oh, I see. When we were looking for interns, we actually screened, what, over like 30 people, yeah. maybe 40? Um, and so we, we only took about five or six and when we accepted them, we accepted all five of them or six of them, we did not expect them all to say yes. So that was really interesting challenge for us because we thought maybe, you know, two, maybe three at most would say yes, but all of them said yes. So we ended up with a lot more interns than we were expecting. <laughs>
Yeah, and I also have to say that it was a pretty humbling experience to see that all five of them said yes because, you know, you're on this journey and you're just looking for people to kind of join you. And when you find that you have these people who are as passionate about the thing that you're working on as you are, that's just the most humbling experience. When we went to the networking event, I think it was you that said that Natalie and Michael acted like co-founders and that's exactly what we want. Then, you know, we're super proud of them because that's hard to find in someone, right? You can find someone who has a lot of aptitude. You can find someone who wants to work and who's a hard worker, but it's hard to find that person that cares, you know, and they care. I think also one of the things that definitely sort of shows the pace that we spe- we set for our interns, like we, we expect them to fail just like we expect ourselves to fail and make mistakes. But we actually took them and drove out to Cleveland to meet with an investor recently. And we took them out and we actually had them sit on the entire meeting. And it was really funny because when we got there, uh, this group had actually known us and they did not know the interns when they were meeting them. And so we brought two of them and they're like, who are these guys? They're like, oh, these are our interns. And they're like, you brought interns to an investor meeting? And we're like, well, yeah, <laughs> because they do a lot of amazing things for us. We rely on them. They're part of the team. Yeah, we keep on telling them that they're part of the uh, Har.io family. So whatever happens next, whether they stay with us or not, we'll be there. Whatever we can offer, we'll offer. So, you know, if you want to enter with Har.io, it won't be this summer, but <laughs> sometime in the future. I bet the connection yeah. is strong with all you guys just yeah. so far. I'm sure it'll carry you guys on throughout the rest of your life, no matter uh, what discipline you enter afterwards. And you were mentioning about that event we all met uh, at. Yeah. It's a really great event. I'm actually curious how many networking events you guys go on a typical uh, basis just to network with these investors and the different entrepreneurial ecosystem here in Pittsburgh. Early on, we did a lot of networking and we talked to a lot of people. And since then, recently, we sort of shifted and focused much more on moving the business forward and just executing and, and sort of doing what needs to be done on the product side of things and on the business side of things. And so when we were starting initially, we were probably meeting with people for coffee three at max four times a week on the good weeks. And then the bad weeks were like maybe one or two meetings. And then the rest was just focusing on the company. And since then recently, we've had a lot of angels reaching out to us uh, almost daily, sometimes two or three daily. And a lot of tier one VCs even reaching out to us from New York and Silicon Valley who are really interested in the technology that we're working on. So unfortunately, a lot of these big VCs, they want to see some proof, some clinical proof that the technology works and then they'll sort of be willing to put money on the table and move forward with the company and with the founders. And so once we have that, that'll be really exciting. So I can't mention the funds that we've talked to so far, but they're definitely some really exciting people. And we'll know in a few days if we have some money coming our way, significant amount of money, actually. Our interns are uh, hesitantly waiting. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine. So does that mean that the cash flow will be coming to you guys as uh, employees and founders as well? Well, you see, um, we're we're actually budgeting most of the money to be towards the clinical trials, legal fees, and maybe you know making sure we don't have to live under a bridge. <laughs> yeah. So funny story. So we were sort of going to these investors and we were talking to them in the early stages and trying to figure out exactly how much we needed. And I remember I asked suckers. I said, "How much do you need to live?" And he goes and he gives me this figure. And I said, "You don't need this. This is too much." And then I narrowed it down some more, knocked it down, and I said, can you do this? He said, I, I don't know, man. I don't think I can do that. And I'll let him sort of tell the rest. Yeah, so I kind of went back, and I was like, exactly, what do I need to like live? And I was like, food, water, rent. I gave that number to Nick, and he's like, see? You don't need anything else. <laughs> and I was like, I told you. See, this is why I'm the finance guy. 
I can, yeah. I, we can make it work. But yeah, like the majority of the money that'll be coming to us, that'll be going towards clinical validation, getting more data, publishing, and then really moving forward essentially with product development and then starting conversations with the FDA. Um, and so with that money, we'll likely hire a really, really good UI developer. So it's a person who recently uh, graduated from MIT. So we were really looking forward to hiring him, but unfortunately our timelines did not match up. And so he is currently working for another company right now. Uh, he took a job offer after graduation, but he's really excited to sort of move forward with us and work with us, uh, at least part-time. And then once we have some uh, cash, we'll be able to give him something more formal. That's great. So you guys kind of have everything set up, just waiting to pull the trigger on many of these things you have in the works. Now, in terms of these clinical trials, how does that work? There's two major types of trials. There's the retrospective study, and then there's the prospective study or trial. And what a retrospective study is, it's you take the data that already exists, and you try to analyze and you come up with some sort of you know analysis. For a, for a machine learning company or an AI company, it's pretty easy. You have some sort of gold truth. You train your data, you test your data, and you see how closely you can match up to that gold truth or gold standard. But a prospective study is more expensive because what you have to do is you have to have an exclusion, ex inclusion criteria. You contact patients or people and then you have to follow them around usually for around a year and you see the outcome and how what happens. So in our case, we want to sort of do the retrospective study first to gain some sort of clinical validation and then sort of run with that. Uh, to investors so that we can then finance the, the, a prospective trial and then the FDA and et cetera. And so that's, that's sort of what we're looking like going forward is really from high level data, validation, product, FDA, and, and then sort of growth stage. And then once we sort of hit that one, when we've sort of scaled out, I can't talk too much about really at least concretely the direction that we're going in. But what I can say is once we sort of hit that one point, then there's a lot of exciting opportunities where we can scale from there. So I guess I can talk a little bit about the vision. This is something we're really excited about, but it's pretty crazy. There's, there's no lack of... We like to call this moment tinfoil hat time. So you've got some tinfoil hats. You can put them on. You'll be uh, with us. Yeah, tinfoil hat time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so really the, the vision for us, at least that when I remember telling you about that one night, sort of 3.30 a.m., crushed Red Bull on the floor, when it sort of hit us, we were like, what if we could take you know the 12-lead algorithm down to one lead and then really build that into a wearable solution like a smartwatch? And that would really change things because a lot of cardiovascular conditions that can kill people are silent, which means they might not have prevalent symptoms, especially for women, people with diabetes, things like that. And so if you could create some sort of solution that's scanning continuously in real time, it could sort of think of it as like a guardian angel that's sort of looking out for people who might have uh, cardiovascular problems or really anybody, at least that in my mind, hopefully they would be able to pick it up off like a Best Buy shelf or at Target or wherever, and they could pick up this product and it could sort of watch out for them. So whether they're walking to work, whether they're sleeping or whatever, be able to tell them that something's wrong, you need to go to the hospital. It's like an AI version of Life Alert meets Fitbit. Yeah, yeah exactly. And one of the biggest things we're trying to hand, uh, tackle, um, at least where our vision is, sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death. Uh, with, with these conditions, after you go into sudden cardiac death, for example, you have around 10 minutes and after that, you have very low likelihood of surviving. Only 11% of people who have out-of-hospital cardiac arrest actually survive. So this is a huge problem and that we're trying to tackle it with our vision. 
And so sort of with that too, like not just sudden cardiac arrest, but even things like heart attacks, a lot of times there's, you know, there's really hundreds of thousands of people from cardiovascular conditions die outside of the hospital before they even get in an ambulance, sometimes in their sleep, sometimes before they even call somebody for help. And the real problem here is just because people aren't aware, which is one of the reasons why the American Heart Association does so much marketing on trying to educate people on the symptoms. Problem is, is the symptoms are really not as prevalent as we'd like. And so if you could create some sort of product or system, let's say, that could identify to people like, hey, you might need to go get help. We think something might be wrong. That could really be revolutionary and, and really uh, a powerful tool to help people. And time ends up being the biggest factor in these cases because according to what figures you look at, around 85% of the cardiac damage occurs in the first two hours. So it's pretty essential to get someone to the hospital as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a huge vision. And I'm sure with ambitious individuals like yourselves, you'll certainly be able to meet this vision and be able to service the United States and the whole world quite like how you envision. Now, what motivates you guys towards this end goal? Absolutely. So I sort of told Uckers from the beginning, you know, it's really never been about money for me with working with startups. In fact, a lot of the startups I worked with offered me pretty lucrative payment or, or sort of compensation, if you will, in terms of options and equity. A lot of it I turned down, actually, just because I enjoyed working with the founders so much and the experience I got. And so with Uckers, from the beginning, what's really motivated me is the team and, and really saving lives and helping people. What Nick is trying to say is that I can't afford him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what motivates me? Uh, I think what motivates me is getting the most out of people and we have you know we everybody on this team has their vision and i think what motivates me is trying to get as much as i can out of everyone working on the startup and trying to get as close as we can to our vision kind of making that progress every single day because you know every single moment we sort of work on this we get closer to helping someone ralph waldo emerson once said that you know to make someone's life a little bit easier or breathe a little bit easier is to have lived. And we kind of embody that. And we, every single day, we kind of try to strive to do that. I think, you know, and this is definitely one of the things that sort of motivates me, at least in my mind, is I don't think that making money and helping people are mutually exclusive. But one of the things that we found a lot in healthcare is, unfortunately, a lot of executives believe that to be true. It's sort of the darker side of healthcare, right? And so for us, you know, we believe, we strongly believe that if you can build a product and a business around a strong business model that creates a significant amount of value for not just a patient, but for the user, in this case, a physician, we think that technology, that proprietary technology is something that will really last and, and really be very lucrative in the long run. Well, thank you guys for being on the fishbowl. Loved hearing what you guys had to say today. And I'm looking forward to see, of course, how your team will affect the world and Pittsburgh's startup ecosystem, whether you guys choose to stay here or wherever. Thank you, Fishbowl audience, for listening until now. Do you guys have anything else to say? I think we're all, we're all going to say thank you. Uh, so thank you. Pittsburgh, stay tuned. We're up and coming. Until next time, Fishbowl audience, this has been Fishbowl Episode 9. and Thank you for listening.